Gomez has options with him. Goethe, Sancho, can he get his shot away? The Yellow Wall Pod. I'm your host Stefan Butzko, and for this somewhat post-Christmas episode, I am joined once again by the one and only Matthias Zuk. Hello, Matthias. How are you doing? Hello, Stefan, and merry belated Christmas to you. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. I am. What uh, did you have for uh, Christmas on your plate? Anything good? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, always good, but, uh, ham, ham, no turkey, because after, like, what seemed like a month of eating turkey after Thanksgiving, it's time to eat a month worth of ham. I see, I see. Well, let's, uh, pan over to our other panelist, who maybe has something else to report about his Christmas dinner, also with us from Spielverlagerung. Konstantin Eckner. Hello, Konstantin. It's very nice to have you finally back on the show. Hi, Stefan. What's up? So what did you get, get to eat during Christmas? Uh, fish, as always. Do you do the seven fishes? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No. That's a, that's no, a just, thing in just, Philadelphia. Just, and, just a few variations of fish, including salmon and some other stuff. Um, yeah, to... Get ready for our uh, Christmas meals, including beefsteak on, this, hmm, uh, very nice. on the second Christmas day. Yeah, my, my family is sort of Italian descent, so the seven fishes, as they say, grammatically incorrect. Um, I think in the end it just comes down to three or four different... I think we had shrimp, scallops, and clams, but it was still very good. Especially clams, uh, uh, scallops wrapped in bacon can only highly recommend that, but we're not here to discuss food. We are here to talk about Borussia Dortmund and the final game of the season. And then we have to discuss uh, Sebastian Rode's loan to Eintracht Frankfurt. And I think we can uh, draw a couple of conclusions from the first half of the season. And next week, I can already announce that uh, we will do the season or half season award show which is always fun but uh, before we dive in i have to thank two very nice contributors who um pledged a couple of bucks on patreon and um the thanks go out to tala martin and abdullah al raisi thank you guys for contributing if anyone else out there wants to do that please go to patreon.com slash the yellow wall And uh, Matthias and I will, uh, I think, after this episode, think about uh, how we can compensate for me not bringing all the matchday flyers to Philadelphia from Dortmund. I'm sorry we didn't have that much luggage and uh, they would have all been very uh, yeah, damaged, I guess, because they're very brittle and frail. Anyway, um, Konstantin, you have the honor of... Um, explaining to me why Lucien Favre and Dieter Hacking both agreed on the 2-1 win between Dortmund and Gladbach being a chess match. 
Ooh, did they? Yeah. I don't know. I, yep. I've never really... Oh, sometimes I follow the post-match um, commentary, but usually I don't um, because it's very pointless uh, <laughs> to listen to, you know, players mumble around um, after 95 minutes of football, um, and including coaches these days. Uh, all, you know, taught very well by the PR departments. Um, but coming back to your question, I think that uh, mostly about especially the first half, I guess, um, since it was about Dortmund um, trying to control midfield and Gladbach trying to work around Dortmund's uh, center, which didn't really work out that well. Um, so what, what it was really about was uh, Zakaria and Neuhaus were playing center midfield ahead of um, Kramer, who basically replaced Strobel, who had to move back into centre-back position um, because they, they have injury issues just like Dortmund. Um, so, and Zakaria and Neuhaus were supposed to, you know, move out wide, fan out, and then um, get something going, support the two um, attacking wingers, including the fullbacks. It's basically Tlatpa's entire um, attacking style is about, you know, um, bombing down the flank and, and uh, breaking through with... Um, Talented uh, players like uh, Torgen Hazard um, or Traoré or um, Hermann or you know, someone else. Uh, player sometimes when he plays on the wing, uh, when, when Stindl is, is ready to go in center. Um, but it didn't really work out. Dortmund shut them down beautifully um, and I think controlled them very well for the most part. I mean, yes, they conceded one, uh, which was once... Uh, instance where um, Patrick Herrmann broke through on the right side and on Gladbach's right side on Dortmund's left side, and then they they immediately were you know getting in in front of uh, Berkey's goal, but usually they didn't, um, and Dortmund really just pressured them a lot and you know forced them into an error uh, which you know committed by young Jordan Bayer, who's still one of the you know interesting prospects in the in the league. Um, but that's, I think, why these two coaches uh, talked about the chess match. Because I, I also think that's the narrative these days, in, in, um, especially in the Bundesliga, I guess, um, that if, if a match it doesn't really have a lot of you know goal-scoring opportunities, if, if there's not much action inside the penalty areas, um, then um, the commentary um, often... Indicates that yeah, it's 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 a chess match. It's a you know it's something for the lovers of the tactical aspects uh, of, <laughs> or of the tactical side of the game. But um, quite frankly, I don't think so. But yeah, that's a narrative that has had had been built up for a while. Um, and I think they just you know the two coaches follow suit because sometimes these narratives even you know are ingrained in the brains of of um, smart men. Or women, but in this case, smart men like um, Dieter Hegging and Lucien Favre, who, in my opinion, uh, since I wrote an article a few days ago, well, in my opinion, are two of the three um, post, you know, uh, coaches who surprised positively, I guess, especially Dieter Hegging um, and Lucien Favre to some extent, because we already knew how how good he was. And Dieter Hegging is someone, you know, has the label of mediocrity, uh, but surprised <laughs> a lot of people uh, in the, uh, during the first. 17 match days yeah that's very true i also don't really like the label of, of chess match for for this game but what i thought one could observe is uh, that especially gladbach were very timid they they look very reluctant to um yeah offer too much space but in on the other hand i don't think they they pressured um dortmund's backline too much and which brings me to um 
the uh, subject of uh, the, the centre-back pairing, which was, uh, to my surprise, Julian Weigel and, uh, to not my surprise, Ömer Toprak. Yet it uh, worked out pretty well, especially, I think, Julian Weigel, who I've given a lot of shit <laughs> in the past. Uh, um, he did very well with his, uh, yeah, past contributions and, and uh, yeah, being able to build from the back. Matthias, um, was it really down just to Gladbach being, let's say, a little bit timid in their attacks and then not putting too much pressure on Dortmund's backline or overall just Dortmund's very good shape to, to keep the pressure off? I would say, Stefan, as per usual, a mixture of both. Um, there's definitely... I, I was surprised, obviously surprised, given what we discussed pre-match, uh, where I think all of us kind of expected uh, a hell-for-leather attacking matchup between two teams that like to go forward and, yeah, I think you I know, predict- be positive. Yeah, I predicted 5-2 or so. That yeah, wasn't quite yeah. on the money. New. New, new, new. Um, and I was surprised by, by how Gladbach played. I, it was almost like it felt to me as if it was, uh, and we kind of touched on it. It's like, okay, who's, who's patchwork back line is going to be trusted more or less. And I think it's very simple. Hecking trusted his patchwork back line significantly less than Lucien Favre did and had more fear of the Dortmund attacking threat than Favre necessarily had of the Gladbach threat. Um, so yeah, very cagey. Um, honestly, not very good in the beginning. I, I, I was like, Oh God, this is not good football to watch. Um, just because it seemed like, you know, Hecking had Gladbach sitting, I don't want to say defensively, but very timid. Let's call it timid uh, and uh, measured. And, of course, we we know Favre likes for Dortmund to also be a little bit measured. Uh, so, yeah, it was almost like two teams didn't quite know what to do because neither one really did what everybody expected the, ball, uh, the match to be. But after a while, Dortmund kind of found into it and felt pretty comfortable most of the match. So, um, yeah, I, I would say a lot of it came down to Gladbach setting up the way they did, also a little bit by necessity given the amount of injuries they're dealing with defensively. Yeah, certainly. Constantine, do you think that a 2-1 win for Dortmund was deserved after 90 minutes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I guess Dortmund during the first 45 minutes basically controlled the match as uh, Matthias already mentioned, you know, Gladbach looked timid. Um they they just had a hard time to to get something going offensively. Um so I think that was you know that's a plus on, on Dortmund's side. Um that they shut down uh Gladbach that effectively. But we I mean before match day seventeen Gladbach wa- was ranked uh, second and now now you know they lost uh, the one up position but they are still third in the league. Um and they could have gotten uh, pretty close to Dortmund w- with a win um so it's not like we are talking about some some average team that's you know was on a on a um, on a high note for for some time now we we talk about a, a club that or a team that has performed very well um over the course of one half of the season um or maybe over the course of 16 matches and then you know they just uh you know got a little bit lost here in uh, what is uh, oft called a spitzenspiel uh, you know top tier match 
the, the match between the, the two top tier sides in the league in Germany. Um, but and, and in the second half, I mean, when, when Dortmund got the lead back, um, and usually then you know the other side is supposed to do something to get a little bit more you know something dangerous going to threaten um, the other. Uh, the, the team that's that's leading, even if it's if it's a away match, uh, but that that wasn't really the case. I mean, even the last five or seven minutes or so, th- there wasn't really something you know Klappbach offered. There was nothing. So I guess because Dortmund uh, controlled the match so so beautifully, um, it was you know it, w- it was a win, um, a deserved win, and and also given or that Dortmund lost to Düsseldorf a few days before. Um, and be, and given that Johan Weigel played centre back and and stuff like that, um, I also think it was it was really helpful for Dortmund's um, just state of mind. You know, going into the winter break with three points, with, with also not only three points, you know, with a, with a razor edge victory or something. You know, winning three points convincingly, um, and that's that's really something that that's really good for Dortmund's state of mind, I guess. Uh, because otherwise, you go into the winter break, you have, you know, you dropped six points, Bayern Munich's on your heels, on your heels again, and, you know, you you have, you, com- you, you celebrate Christmas completely differently. Yeah, Hans-Joachim Watzke said in the mix zone, I think something along the lines of uh, my entire Christmas was dependent on that win, which I think sums it up qu- quite well. Um, Matthias, maybe we can um, already talk about that a little bit uh, briefly because Konstantin just mentioned it. Um, Dortmund in the last weeks, in the last months, had a lot of very narrow wins and uh, also, at least to me, it seemed they were not necessarily always going for that 4-0, 5-0 blowout result. Um, I th- obviously, they had their chance conversion rate dropped a little bit but that being said Lucien Favre you know he is preaching patience with his players within the game do you think that they have um, grown much more mature within the season I think Marco Royce after the um, what was it the 2-2 equalizer against Berlin or so he said that we have to become more mature to uh, yeah basically drive these wins home and ever since I, I think they've done very much that in, in these kind of situations do you do you see that um, there's a development Dortmund being more mature and on also just trying to, I guess, just cruise a little in the game by by controlling it without necessarily having all of the ball. Yeah, it, well, it's it's very very Favre like. Um, I mean, he's not a a heavy metal football, so to speak, kind of manager, never has been, has always been a little bit more patient and reserved in the approach of his teams. Um, so I'm, I'm not surprised by it when it comes to a lot of narrow victories or tight matches, um, especially, especially when you look at the fact that Dortmund in a lot of those matches was, you know, dominant on the ball and stuff like that. I think it also comes down to the opposition faced, um, during that run, a lot of teams that decided to sit back, defend, hit, try to hit Dortmund on counterattacks or set pieces, um, be more physical, let's put it that way, uh, in their approach because they knew they couldn't open up against Dortmund because that's when Dortmund would absolutely destroy you. Um, so I, I think there's, there's that factor plus, plus the, the Favre more conservative approach. Um, and he's okay with a 1-0 or 
or a 2-0 or a 2-1 victory versus a 5-3. Like (laughs) some managers have said, uh, they'd rather see a 5-3 than a 1-0. I think he's perfectly content with getting three points. Uh, Not necessarily no matter how, he still wants a certain style and positivity about it, but... You know, there, there is a level of pragmatism to him, uh, that, for instance, Peter Bosch, the new Bayer Leverkusen manager, simply doesn't have. Um, and so, uh, it's, it's just not surprise, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, and I think, uh, we'll see a little bit more of that again in the second half of the season. Once Dortmund hits that same run of teams that are probably going to pack more players behind the ball defensively rather than trying to play with Dortmund. Yeah, Konstantin, what do you make of that when Dortmund are one goal up and all of a sudden, for example, against Bremen or against Gladbach, you see them with 10 men in their own half and basically waiting for the break. Um, What do you make of it? I mean, if you feel comfortable sitting deep, why not? That's just... There were times... Um, Do you think that conserves energy? Oh, yeah. Of, of course it does. Uh, I mean, that's like basically proven um, pr- um, proven to be true that uh, usually the defending side um, doesn't lose as much energy as, you know, the, the side. Uh, also, it's it's mentally training, of course, but it's also, um, uh, you know, losing energy because um, you can just shift around a little bit here and there. You, you don't... Um, cover as, as much space as, as the side who's, uh, that, that is really moving forward the, the whole time um, because you are moving around much more than when you're sitting deep defending with two tight lines of four um, and basically not doing really much just covering space you know, and, and, and man marking here and there um, so yeah it, it conserves some, some energy the, the problem or the issue um, for a couple of years now um, before Fafa arrived, was that the Dortmund usually wasn't uh, didn't really feel comfortable sitting deep. <laughs> Not at all. No, no. Even even I, under, I even think under a lot Jürgen... of fans, yeah, a, a lot of Dortmund fans are still very uncomfortable seeing that just because of of the years of experience that this sort of football usually goes wrong for them. Yeah, even under Jurgen Klopp, it wasn't really their style, and they they sometimes did it because there were a few years, um, 2012 where uh, Supotic and Hummels basically, you know, just were out of uh, out of this world. So they just won every one-on-one situation. So they are, I mean, you could do that because, like, you had these two monsters at centre-back. And, and Piszczek was all, and Schmelzer were also, you know, really great for, for a long time. Uh, but usually, you know, you don't really have a... a, a, a Backline at one hundred percent, you know, some struggle or injuries like like right now. I mean, they they set deep um, for for against Gladbach, not not as much as in our matches, but they set deep with um, with Ulmer Toprak and Johan Weigel at centre back, and with uh, Piszczek and, and and Hakimi. I mean, yeah, of course they they are they are great uh, fullbacks right now, and I think uh, among the best in the league, and and Hakimi one of the most talented fullbacks in Europe. Um, but still, I mean, you and Weigel and Ömer Toprak, you know, that would have gone <laughs> badly a, a year or two ago. Um, but it didn't. I mean, you and Weigel, it's not his, it's not his, you know, um, position to shine. And I mean, no one now expects him to be a center back. He's still a center midfielder because it's, it's far more, you know, he's, because he can be so comfortable on the ball and, and his passing game is so superior to, to many other midfielders in the league. Uh, but still, um, you, you saw him and he played. I mean, he often match 
I, I said I, I don't give much uh, thought to, you know, post-match commentary, but after the match he said he made a few mistakes, but it wasn't that bad. And I think he's, he's probably right. He, he made a few mistakes in terms of positioning, but it wasn't really that bad. I mean, it's not, nothing that really caused any havoc. Um, and, you know, uh, and usually he, he was, he felt comfortable. And that has a lot to do with the tactical system and Fafa's work because, um, quite famously, he's, he's like the, the coach who on the training pitch is like moving around his, his players like, like jazz figures. Now we're coming back to the jazz metaphor. Um, and, and, you know, he, he's learning or he's, he's teaching them, uh, how to move, how to position. And that's really a plus for every Fafa side I've watched, uh, past, um, I don't know, six, seven, eight years. Um, and that's why usually, um, they concede so little, um, and are, you know, just look so stable when defending deep. And that's a big plus for Dortmund because usually you have to do that, especially in December, especially in March when, you know, batteries are a little bit on the low side. Um, that's uh, our teams break down. You don't. And that's a, that's a big plus. I mean, just watch Manchester City in England. Now, a side that doesn't feel comfortable sitting deep, low batteries over Christmas, bam, three three losses in four matches. That can happen. Dortmund, no, not so much. Yeah, this is exactly what I was getting at, that uh, this basically is, I think, a strategy that helps Dortmund tremendously, especially in the month of December, November, when you have such a cramped schedule and so many games and still... You need to grind out all these results because if you don't, you're very quickly out of the title race. Uh, just look at Manchester City, who obviously are not out of the title race, but uh, yeah, are in a very unfavorable position now um, after Boxing Day. So, Matthias, that in mind, let's maybe talk a little bit about a couple of individual performances uh, in, in this game. Um, Paco Alcasa, of course, had to come off after, I think, 30 minutes or so um, with a hamstring injury, and that might affect his affect his um, winter camp preparations or whatnot. But on came Mario Götze, and in my mind, he was the man of the match and has had maybe one of the best performances this season. Um how do you see his performance and uh, what do you make of him yeah grabbing to assist well judging by his um tweets over the holidays i would say he's rather happy um <laughs> yeah and <laughs> looking at his twitter you know, that was anyway. for more bad performance yeah. so he would shut the yeah. up again actually. yeah well hey at least it's not kevin Trapp. Yeah. Right. anyway um so if you don't know what I'm talking about there, just I, th I don't know if it was Twitter or Instagram from Tev Kevin Trapp and his wife, girlfriend. Yeah, I think it it's really to, to Twitter in some, yeah, some way it's where he was really weird. Doing some it's acrobatic. so weird. So weird. Anyway, <laughs> uh, back to things that actually matter. Uh, Mario Götze, I agree with you. That was probably, in my opinion, his best match of the season. Um, played very, very well. Played... Um, seems to be more and more comfortable in the role he's asked to play. And to me, the second Dortmund goal, uh, and, and I commented about it too, it kind of showed the class of both Götze and Royce. You know, somebody said, oh, it was just a tap-in goal. But no, it wasn't because Royce had to delay sticking out his leg until the ball was in the right position compared to where Jan Zoma, the keeper for Gladbach, was before he could, quote-unquote, tap it in. And he 
he had to delay and he did it right. And of course, Goetz's pass was perfect. I mean, it, it's just, it was absolute perfection. He played very, very well. Um, he's, you know, all the traits that we know and love about Mario Goetze. He's not afraid of going after it in a pressing sense, uh, positionally standing in the right places, being very intelligent with the ball and his movement. Uh, and you could just tell, you know, guys around him, especially Marco Royce, just feed off of that. So I totally agree with you. He was the man of the match. And in my opinion, his best performance, um, maybe even since he's returned to Dortmund. You know what? That actually makes me very happy because I'm always rooting for Mario Götze to do well. Um, he's uh, gotten a lot of shit in, in recent years and it was certainly not easy for him, especially with all the diseases he had and the struggles. So while I'm still not a big fan of his social media appearance, um, personally, I think he's actually a very good lad and, and deserves to do well. And if he does so, um, it obviously also helps Dortmund. And uh, I think if nobody else on this show, Konstantin probably has, uh, yeah, talk the most about him in a very positive way if if i'm not mistaken because um you just prices i think for first and foremost is his footballing intelligence so um were you happy to see mario Götze to perform as he did Constantine. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I guess i was among uh, those who really uh, praised him uh, as much as possible, i guess. Um i mean, of course there were, you know, bad performances that there have been bad performances. Uh, over the past few years or so. Um, but on the other hand, I, I just recently talked to someone about it. Uh, I talked to someone about uh, Sebastian Deisler, uh, who, who is still considered by some um, being, you know, the most talented uh, football, German football in the past 30 years or so. And, and others say that, that, uh, you know, especially colleagues and former colleagues of Götze say that, that he is, you know, the, the most talented guy they've ever played with or against. Um, and, and, you know, I don't want to have, uh, basically Sebastian Deisler 2, uh, 2.0. Uh, which means, you know, you have this, this tremendous talent, but someone who's a bit more sensitive. And I, I, I sense that, that Götze is somewhat sensitive. Um, and doesn't deal that well with, you know, when he's really getting, getting, um, you know, shit from every side, as you, as you said, crap from every side. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, just being criticized and, and fan hatred and, you know, people are disappointed in him and, and just, you know, people writing him off. Um, that basically his career is over and he, you know, you will never be as good as Messi. Well, no, yeah, why not? I mean, don't be as good as Messi. Just be as good as Mario Götze can be. I think that's, that's a good advice for everyone in life. Um, just be as good as you, as yourself can be. I think that the entire Messi narrative is just, you know, counterproductive. Um, but that's why I, th I think his performance against Klepper was, was quite, um, you know, was quite promising. He came on for Paco Alcaza. I, I've, I've, I still sense that that uh, Akasa is a great goal scorer, and I think in some in some settings he can be also a great footballing center forward. But right now, not really. When he is on the pitch, um, Sancho and and Lawson and and Royce and all the other uh, attacking players, uh, you know, who are lined up by uh, Farfer are working for him for him to score. Um, and sometimes it limits them a little bit. So if you know when when Götz is on the pitch, it's basically like you get four equally or equal uh, attacking players 
there. You've got like four attacking midfielders. Um, with, you know, Royce, Sancho, Götze, and whoever, like Guerrero or Larson or Pulisic. Um, and I think sometimes that helps them a bit, a bit more when they play this small ball type of football, uh, Dortmund prefers because Paco is, Paco is not a, uh, type who, a type of player who wins these aerials a lot of times. I mean, he can score like, like the Dusseldorf goal, uh, in, uh, you know, by a header or something, but usually he doesn't. He's too small. Um, and I don't <laughs> think it really works that well against deep sitting teams, you know, to, to just, play uh cross passes especially um i think there were a few cross pa- you know cross presses uh, uh coming from uh from Sancho. so i was really surprised because like dortmund doesn't really do that much they, they play the lowest amount of crosses in the entire league despite yeah. having so much ball possession um you know Bayern munich the others they, they play the most um so that's re- not really the, the the style of dortmund uh what they really need is um, small ball play, and when Götze is on the pitch, Sancho is even better, I think, because Sancho is really—I mean, his his dribbles down the down the flank are great, great to watch. Sometimes successful, sometimes not. But when he's really available when he moves into the half space, and really, you know, that 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 uh, opponents are thrown at him, and he maybe takes one out or two, and then plays a beautiful um, uh, pass through the lines, and that's really what what he what he does so well. I think Sancho is the most dangerous when he's in the half space, when he does one uh, one twos with Royce, or you know, he he makes space for Götze like ahead of the second goal against Gladbach. Really beautiful counter attack, basically, and Sancho moved into the middle, free. Gladbach players were on him. No one was on Götze. Götze got the ball, and then the rest is history, as you say. Yeah, I mean these through balls by Sancho are very dangerous as well. Um, but yeah, I I mean I want to comment a little bit on on what you just said. I I think if, when when it comes to quote unquote small ball forwards, I think that Paco Alcázar is still very useful. And that the small ball game, so to speak, actually still suits him for center forward in, in, in comparison to others. I mean, just look at the uh, one chance in the first half that he created for Royce, where he basically just dinked it forward. And then, uh, it was a really good save by, by Jan Sommer. But just this little dink is something that Alcasa does very well. And, and sometimes he has his, one move where he receives a bong, long ball and then back heels it around the uh, midfielder or defender and then has a lot of free space. So it's it's not like he's completely useless, but I I, I think uh, a couple of games have have proven your point, especially the one against Düsseldorf where Dortmund created almost zilch until uh, Jane Sancho came on. I mean, there was this uh, one offside goal, but otherwise I don't remember or recall too many chances. I think Mario Götze had had a shot from distance which uh yeah was uh more of a uh, more of a pass back to the goalkeeper than anything else um <laughs> right. but i think that also goes to show right now uh, maybe a little bit of a shift in 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 form and quality because um a lot of i don't know if a lot of games but um Pulisic and and uh, Brun Larsen used to start a lot of games together on on the wings and uh it worked out well, and then Jaden Sancho came on and and you know did his thing as well. But um, I think both Pulisic and Sancho completely have uh, uh, both Pulisic and Brun Larsen completely have have lost their form, and that's evident uh, versus Guerrero and and Sancho, of course, who um, especially against Gladbach were both excellent. Um, Matthias, what do you make of of um, yeah the let's say 
reciprocal uh, developments in form of these two winger pairs, let's call them. Even though they're interchangeable, of course. Well, for me, you know, specifically to Rafael Guerrero, who I'm very happy to see is right now healthy, at least. Um, it, it kind of fits a certain theme. I want to say, I'm not going to say reclamation project, but maybe when it comes to him, because he really shined under Thomas Tuchel. And then last season, as so many players, completely disappointed and played underneath his capabilities. And I feel that the more we see this season progress, the more we have to say, yeah, the players are to blame to a certain degree for their performances. But I, but the biggest difference is obviously the person coaching them or the people that are coaching them. So um, all credit to uh, Favre and the coaching staff and the system that they've employed that's really bringing out the best out of players were we had question marks whether they had a future at the club like a Guerrero as an example or the quick development and ascension of Zagadou or Sancho two more examples or how much they've been able to get get out of Delaney who's obviously technically significantly more limited versus some of his colleagues um inversely of course you have to question what's the issue when you look at uh, Christian Dahut, where where's that going? Is it going anywhere? Even though he had good showings, uh, Pulisic, obviously, what's going on there? Is that a head thing or is that a player capability thing? Obviously, against Düsseldorf, he was useless. And um, it felt like he committed the most fouls uh, in that match just because he was so frustrated. Um, so there, there are just... Yeah, it, it's a question now. Is it the coach or is it the players? Because obviously Pulisic thrived a little bit more last season. I'd say he was probably one of these standout performers. And now where everybody else is playing well, and you'd say you have a higher quality coach at the helm, uh, he's struggling. So it's, it's an interesting juxtaposition to keep an eye on, but uh, maybe a juxtaposition we don't have to keep an eye on for a significantly long time. Yeah, I mean, obviously. I mean, if if I could voice one minor criticism towards uh, Favre, even even if it's just a minor one, and I don't really know what's going on sometimes, you know, when they have training sessions, um, you know, who are not open to the public and stuff like that, we don't really know. But um, when I look at the Hoot, for instance, he's I just looked up in the Bundes in his Bundesliga appearances. His last Bundesliga appearance was when he got, uh, you know, when he. Um, played the second 45 minutes, the second half against Bayern Munich. And he was part of... He was of, excellent. Yeah, he, well, he was excellent. And he was part of Dortmund winning a decisive match. So, I mean, I don't really know that that, uh, that performance, in, especially against Bayern Munich, um, you know, despite all the problems they have, still, I mean, they are, they are dangerous. And, and in, in midfield, it's it's a hard... It's a hard piece of work for every uh, midfielder to, you know, to go up against them. Um, and he did well. So what's the argument for getting dropped afterwards? It, it, I mean, dropped entirely. So no, no further appearance um, until the winter break. And uh, the match against Bonn was uh, on 10th of November. So 
I don't know. I mean, there has to be something about that. There is more to it. It has to be more to it uh, than just, you know, I don't know, a few bad training performances. I don't think that's that's the reason to drop him entirely. And I even think that um, Delaney and Witzel, because they play so much, um, I mean, you have to think about bringing on Dahoud here and there because uh, Delaney and Witzel, they have a very physical style. Um, and... I don't know. I mean, it's just, you know, going 90 minutes uh, every three or four days. That's not really what you, what you can do. And then, sus, you know, sustain your performance over months. So, I mean, Dahoud is important, just like uh, Weigel. And, uh, in, in the attacking department, as being mentioned, um, yeah, uh, Larsen dropped in form, Pudisic, I don't know what's going on. I think, uh, you know, the, the path, the, the paths, Dortmunds and Pusics will will separate in summer, I guess. Um, and so another attacking player would be quite uh, available. So what what about Shinji Kagawa? Is just got he got he missing somewhere? I don't know. Is just is, is he locked out of the of the training pitch or something? I don't know. Uh, but I, I'm a little bit surprised <laughs> sometimes by by Farfus, um decisions Play in regards selection. to. Personnel, yeah, and just sometimes. I don't want to criticize most of the decisions because they were great, but sometimes, I mean, like Chichi Kagawa, is he too bad to play 45 minutes against, I don't know, uh, Freiburg or Dusseldorf or so? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, he's, I don't know, unless there's has happened something to him, but I guess, Stefan, since you are uh, very close and you you follow the, the situation Dortmund very closely and, and uh, report on everything very carefully, I guess you would know if you know Kagawa got, I don't know, Got locked into a closet and they haven't found him. Yeah, or what, what can I say? It's it's just uh, the typical thing of uh, him sleeping with Favre's daughter. What can you do? Yeah, yeah Kagawa is known for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's he's yeah. one of these Japanese guys. They do it a lot. <clears throat> Whatever. <laughs> wait, wait, he, didn't he actually uh, in this very first stint at Dortmund? Uh, I, I think he had a relationship with some Japanese porn star. <laughs> so. Um, Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but no, in all honesty, I don't, I don't know either because I think that Kagawa is a very um, good player and that um, he usually doesn't need a lot of time to get into form um, if you play him right and 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 well. Maybe not like against Hoffenheim where he played, I think, as a striker t at times, but uh, he can do a lot of things for you. And the same with Dahoud, and especially when you enter a game against Düsseldorf. I think you don't need Delaney, to be honest. I just don't don't see the upside of having Delaney in there um, because you will not prevent all the counterattacks anyway because if you lose possession, they will have played the ball already into Luka Bakio's way or path before Delaney can get there to, to block the shot or whatever. So... Um, you know, especially where where it's going to be super tight and you need to create more, I think the hood will be of more value. And uh, so, yeah, I agree with you very much, Constantine. I think there still have been a couple of decisions that can be done better. But that being said, um, complaining about the situation is also not really on vogue considering they're top of the league with six points. Um, so... Maybe back to Rafael Guerrero real quick. Um, Konstantin, do you think going forward into the second half of the season, he will play a much more prominent role because we've all seen what talent he has, what he is capable of, and uh, 
I can see him very well in, in that left midfield position for Dortmund right now. What about you? Right. The, the magic words are left midfield, uh, not left back. So Obviously. I, I, yeah, yeah, but, but that's. I think that was one of his issues. When he got signed, he got signed as a left back you know, with... Um, uh, just after th his performances for the uh, Portuguese national team, um, when they won the Euros, and he was their left back, and um, some of his weaknesses were hidden. Um, but you could see that, you know, defensively, he's not the, he's not a schmelzer, he's not a not a piss check, um, and uh, that's why he had some struggle. On on top of that, of course, his injuries and maybe some. Some other uh, issue off the pitch is issues, if we want to call it that way, um, that he wasn't as disciplined as as Dortmund wants their their players to be. Um, but but what does he bring to the table? What let's say Brun Larsen or Pulisic or so on not bring to the table? What can he do better? And what, if so, would qualify him for a bigger chunk of playing time right. in a let's say starting position left of Marco Reus? Right. So compared to to Larsen. Um, He's he's a more um, let's say flexible player, a versatile. That's that's the right word. Um, because Lawson is very you know uh, one and gun uh, one and gun type of of a winger, and um, Guerrero <laughs> is more of a more basically more of a. Lawson's playing heavy touch and rush. <laughs> yeah, or heavy. T yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, just just every, every touch can be a one-two. You know, that's that's uh, no, but. Um, it's uh, Guerrero is more of a let's say a, a center midfielder on the left side or on the, on the right side on the wing, uh, and sometimes that's that's really uh, what you want, um, especially if you got someone like Sancho on the other side. So what you can do is you have the you have one side who's who's really um, heavy on triples and, and and on runs, you know that Sancho piss check side, and Guerrero not so much. He's more you know he wants to to link up with his, his teammates. He wants to. To interact with them, and he wants to be um, um, engaged in the in, in the in the passing plays. And also, what he does quite well is, since Hakimi plays as the left back um, or has played as the left back quite often, um, Hakimi is a bit of a wild card, uh, which means that he sometimes makes just runs and nobody knows what he's what he's really going to do. Uh, but he makes it, and he has like incredible speed. So. I mean, why not? He's like he's like the, the secret uh, weapon of Dortmund right now, um, and he often, you know, he, he drifts a little bit inwards. And what what Guerrero does is he doesn't like like stick to his position up front. What he what he does is move a little bit back and basically um, secures Hakimi's run. So if Hakimi loses the ball, which happens a lot, um, basically like he does this crazy stuff. He's he's not someone who's like calm and and calculated. He's someone who uh, maybe I break through and I score um, because it you know it worked quite well sometimes against Atletico or so. Um, Guerrero really really is clever to move back, fall back, and then just uh, let the wild man do his do his thing. Um, and compared to Pulisic, just you know tactical uh, tactical understanding. It's just uh, Guerrero is far better because he's he's like the center midfielder. Um, he's, he's playing on the left side, so he he understands situations very well. As I just mentioned in regards to uh, Hakimi's runs. So, and Pulisic, not so much. I don't know what happened to Pulisic, quite frankly, because when I watched him playing for the, uh, you know, Dortmund's under 19 team or so, under 17 team, he was basically like a Ozil type of player, a Ozil type of number 10. He really a great passing player, really saw these, these little gaps and, 
um, pre precise, accurate passes. Um, it was really his thing, and now he sticks to to the sideline um, and just tries these one on ones. Isn't isn't really the best one on one player, quite frankly, uh, especially in tight play and tight spaces. I think that's why he was better last year when there was open space. It was really wild under Peter Bosch. Um, but it isn't any, it isn't the case anymore. It's like that the team moves forward quite compact. And then Pulisic is stuck in these, these tight spaces and doesn't really have the technique or like the overall tripling ability to really do something, uh, or do as well as Sancho does. And that's why Sancho is far ahead of him. And that's why I guess Pulisic is just, you know, a bench player at this point. Yeah. Very much. If I may add one thing, what I like about Guerrero, which gives him the edge over Pulisic and, and uh, Brunlassen in that one category, is whenever Dortmund overload the left side and it gets a little crowded, um, they still manage to pass around the ball with precision and an extreme high pace just because, as you just said, Guerrero can make these links. And uh, Dortmund have created already a couple of very good chances that way. And I, I think um, this is a tactical measure that we will see, you know, every now and then, maybe for two or three minutes in the game or so, where Dortmund just overload the left side, where Sancho, for example, just drags very far to the center or so. And uh, when you have Guerrero in there, you have a higher chance to create something from the uh, combinations that ensue than if you have either Pulisic or, or Brun Larsen. Um, to, to round this off. And now um, I have a very good question for Matthias because it's about the old guy in the team, Lukas Piszczek. What an amazing game he had against Gladbach and overall the first half of the season just completely renewed back to his best Lukas Piszczek. Matthias, do you have any explanation why or how he turned his form around that drastically? Well, obviously, he made a Faustian deal with the devil. Uh, there's no, there's literally no other explanation. No, um, you know, obviously, he had a rough time. Was it for about a year, mainly due to injuries? And everybody, and in, including myself, thought, okay, that's it. He's just run so hard and worked so hard for so many years. He, he's done. His body is done. He's regressing because it looked like he was definitely on a downward trajectory. He looked like he was destined to go play for Stuttgart. <laughs> um, as so many Dortmund players do when they're, when trajectory tends to go down a little bit. Um, but he has found a new, uh, fountain of youth, so to speak. I don't know. I don't have enough information if he's basically picked up a, a book from players like Ryan Giggs. Um, to figure out how to extend your career, uh, especially playing at such a high pace and uh, high intensity levels as he does, and obviously as, as Giggs did at Manchester United for all those years. Um, but he's been one of the players of the Hinrunde, in my opinion, one of the best Dortmund players, uh, a little unsung hero because he's been there for so long. He's been there for, what is it now, almost 10 years? Wait, you joined in 2010? Um, 10, 10. Yeah. 9, 10, something like that. So eight, eight, nine years. 
And uh, we're just used to him. He's, he's like the furniture, you know. I mean, he's like Michel Talk. He's just going to be there. Um, and so maybe people just don't value him when you look at the flash of the new people like a Hakimi or a Sancho or a Paco Alcacer or what Witzel is doing and um, in, in, or Diallo and Akanji, all the other people around him even that are flashier players, younger players, new players. Uh, he, he's like a, you know, a good, good bottle of scotch aged properly. And, uh, he's doing incredibly well. I'm so happy to see him performing at as good a level as I've seen Lucas Pischek play in years. I mean, it's close to, maybe not quite all the way, but close to, you know, the great years when, when he wasn't the only Polish player in the starting 11, when we had Kuba in front of him, and obviously Lewandowski up top. So it's fantastic to see him perform so well, and maybe it's because He's pushed a little bit more by a player like Hakimi, because obviously Toyan doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and um, a younger player kind of pushing him, and, and he is a, a leader on that team. He's a veteran. He's been there. He's done it. And unlike his colleague on the left side... Marcel Schmelza, who has regressed, uh, you know, obviously injuries play a part and maybe he'll find a, a new, newfound youth in the second half of the season. But, uh, seeing what Pishek has done, uh, absolutely fantastic. And, uh, I'm, I'm happy every time he does well and uh, the few times he scores a goal. Yeah, very much so. And that's apparently also the only time he gives an interview after the game, as I had to find out after the Bremen match where he didn't score. Um, <laughs> Though, Konstantin, um, do you think it might have to do with how Favre sets up his team that Lucas Pischek can excel? Because um, I think this is a position that is also very um, dependable on how the coach likes to have his fullbacks play. Yeah, to some extent. But but uh, looking back at uh, Vukas Pischek's uh, career, I, I, I think he has played... Um, that way for, for a long time, I guess. Um, he doesn't really do m much differently. Also, I think it's, it's, uh, for him, you know, um, a comfortable situation that, um, Sancho is playing in front of him. So Sancho is, 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 you're very talented, but, uh, somewhat, somewhat of a not typical winger, but, um, not someone who does, you know, surprising things. Um, and, and because Sancho moves, to the to the center a lot, um, or does these these dribbles, you know, coming from the outside? Um, Pischik really knows what he has to do because he, he has done it so long. He has done it when he played behind Kuba and Kroskoitz and um, all the all the or Parish sits or who else, you know, you name it, um, and um, or behind Royce or others. And really, it it's the same. It's the same style, and that's it's really helping him. I mean, I confess that you know early on this season, I thought that you know, like you know the days of Vukas Pischek are counted, um, and and he will he will be out, but but he isn't um, because I think uh, especially in terms of fitness um, and his timing and everything is back, and and maybe didn't have a great summer or something. I don't know. Maybe there was something going on, and and that's why he looked so so sloppy and you know 
yeah, it's just sloppy and slow um, during the first few matches. And I, I was really concerned, actually, because I felt like if, if he doesn't step up his game, uh, Hakimi has to replace him. Uh, and Hakimi played a few, uh, I think, if I remember correctly, played a few matches on the right side. But of course, Hakimi is just tremendous on the left side. Um, and if, if Schmelzer comes back to form um, during the winter break, which I hope happens, um, then you got three setup, uh, three fullbacks can really do well and maybe can add a full, uh, fourth center, uh, sorry, for fullback, um, maybe in winter, maybe next summer, because you need one. Uh, I think Jeremy Tolian is in the same uh, locker, um, locked into the same locker as, as um, Kagawa, I think. Yeah, and that being said, you also can't bet on Pishek playing like that forever, so you, no, you must can't. think be, be, about this replacement. Because, because also what we have to remember is, you know, 2013, when he, got the, uh, when he played the Champions League final with the hip injury, and, and you know, when he had, like, backs under his eyes uh down to his chin <laughs> uh because like he was just under pain and i don't know how much how much stuff he took of course not on the doping list but still uh he, he took a lot i think he took a lot of jabs and and uh you know just whatever he, he, he did and uh, just get ready and uh don't feel like he got shot in the hip uh because i think that was like that the pain outside of matches was like that um so of course, you have to remember that, like, there's mileage on his body. He's 33 years old. Physical style runs a lot. Um, so, I mean, don't be surprised if, like, one day he just breaks down and, like, it's over. Uh, sometimes th- these things happen cre- very quickly. I mean, sometimes really professional athletes break down. When they break down, it takes them a few weeks or months and, like, th- their body is completely gone. And uh, it's also a mental thing to some extent, of course. And so, yeah. We can be happy if he does that like uh, so well and de- until summer or even beyond that. But you know you can't count on Piszczek having another three years and basically you know playing like like Carboni or Sanetti or so um, until he's forty. Um, maybe he can, but like that's too too much of a risk to take. Um, you said, uh, said the fullback positions are are very crucial and often underrated. I think what Hakimi does right now. Playing at, at, on the left side and doing these, these like unorthodox runs into the middle shows you how much a fullback can impact a, a match uh, when he, you know, not just once these these linear or does these linear runs, but but does something a little bit unorthodox and uh, often that's overlooked. That you know, fullbacks are really important. Yeah, maybe the one thing that helped Lucas Bischek is, is I think the addition of Axel Witzel, just because. Uh, the most infuriating thing about Lukas Piszczek in the last season, and, and I think also often in the season before, was just his wayward passes in midfield right into the pressing trap where, uh, another opposing midfielder would just, you know, intercept the pass or, or whatever and, and then, uh, have a very open, you know, counterattacking situation. Meanwhile, Axel Witzel just, you know, he disables the pressing trap by just being so press resistant that even if there's opponent coming from behind um it's still very hard for that opponent to win the ball so maybe that's this uh little factor has helped and i think that uh, the the fact that dortmund's build-up play by itself is not as one-dimensional as it was and as uh yeah dependent on the fullbacks as it was last year that also helps to um yeah tie a little bow on this subject and uh, before we get out of here, talking about the uh, Gladbach game, Matthias, obviously we have to talk a little bit 
even though just briefly about the um, goal by Christoph Kramer, who for once in the Westfalenstein found the uh, net of the opposing team. Um, so what happened is he um, sort of headed the ball against his own hands and it sort of dinged off Lukas Piszczek right into his path and he hit home in the stoppage time of the first half and that meant Dortmund, uh, who just basically scored, uh, went into the locker room with a tie instead of uh, a lead. There was a lot of discussion, as always, when the ball hits uh, the hand in, in the box. Um, going by the rule, I don't think there's much discussion what do you make of this situation because uh, at the moment there was a lot of rage by Dortmund fans, but I, I, I honestly couldn't quite comprehend it. So were you on the... Uh, in the rage camp. <laughs> I don't know if I was in the rage camp as much as the, I don't understand what's a handball and what's not a handball camp. Um, I mean, I'm not quite Sean Dyche when it comes to that, but um, it was, I, I honestly, I was confused uh, to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, on Fox, they had, uh, a, a rules, a rules expert who said that's a handball. Dr. Joe Macknick, who uh, was yeah, it's sitting in some yeah dark room throughout the well, entire world. He may as, <laughs> yeah, so he may as well be a VAR official. Um, you know, he said it's a handball, plain and simple, no questions asked. And, and I guess the the biggest issue is uh, that it wasn't even really looked at again. Properly, well, properly by by at least. Yeah, but at least to tell the referee, hey, how about you take a look at this one again? Um, because an advantage. This is the way I saw it. Call me right, call me wrong. An advantage was gained by the goal scorer by the ball hitting his hand, and as such, whether it's intentional or unintentional, that literally doesn't matter with handball because if you have it in an unnatural position you may not be intentionally handling the ball but if you hit it it's a handball in a certain situation with a few factors playing in and in this case i personally saw it yes through very biased black and yellow tinted <laughs> glasses as he gained an advantage by it coming off of his hand and a goal was scored so in in my opinion the goal shouldn't have stood uh, after 90 minutes, it didn't really matter much, thank God. Uh, but I saw it as a handball that the goal shouldn't have stood, but there are plenty of people on the other side who say it's not a handball in that in that sense. Obviously, nobody can dispute that the ball and the hand collided. Um, it's not a handball in the sense of that anything needed to be changed. So I think it comes back to nobody really knows what a handball is. So yay! Well, it's it's a very difficult subject, and uh, I don't want to be the person to write these rules. But as as far as I know, um, it's not a handball as as uh, soon as the uh, ball deflects to the hand from another body part, um, and that was the case. And I guess just. Christoph Kramer's very um, awkward body positioning sort of gave him an advantage there, um, which is debatable, of course, but I think if we go by the letter of the law, it's not a handball, and, and thus the goal stood correctly. Um, I also don't agree with um, how you ruled in that case. I think if, if there's a, 
very big advantage to be gained from that. Uh, you should rule it out. But on the other ha hand, <laughs> I like it um, that there is the rule that um, it's not a handball when the when the ball deflects from a from a body part, like from your knee or so to your hand. Because if you rule that a handball, it's it's often uh, yeah just very um, unfortunate. Oh, I'll. I'll agree with you on that, but it wasn't like it came off of his knee and his hand was on, at the other knee and it kind of hit weird. I mean, he headed it with the intention of ideally scoring, yeah, see, so it and then it hit his ball. Had he not so, headed, headed into his hands, he probably would have scored. Uh, yeah, well, I don't know about that. It's Christoph Kama, <laughs> but yeah, it's like you said. It's a, it's, it's not. Oddly enough, it's not black and white. It's very gray. It's very muddled. Um, I've seen significantly more blatant handballs not get called than this. So, and given that it wasn't match deciding, and it's Christmas, <laughs> I decided to just move on rather quickly yeah, from it. Yeah, I, I think so too. So, um. Borussia Dortmund sit top of the league after 17 rounds and they have uh, scored 42 points and uh, scored 44 goals and only conceded 18, which is already very good. But, Konstantin, they're only 14th in uh, the shot statistic of, of uh, shots uh, created. Um, but then again, they are uh, above everyone else in the uh, goals to shot conversion rate, uh, meaning that 27.5 of their shots turn into goals and uh, second place in that category is Gladbach with only 21.7%. So there's a huge gap and I think that is the most favorite thing ever, isn't it? That Dortmund have a very low amount of shots but uh, score a lot of them, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's basically a far for thing, right? Uh, and just uh, to have like a really like quality oriented shot selection, and and also be uh, getting low in the crosses, uh, or not getting low in the crosses that that might be misinterpreted, uh, but uh, not um, doing that many crosses, um, or you know a little amount of crosses, which also um, usually helps to uh, get a higher quality uh, of shots um and yet it's that's it's it's very rare in in football actually because a lot of teams are just focused on output 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 and, and you know following the expected goals model basically if you have enough output you will score um but um i mean that's just far first thing and i remember that uh, one season with uh, nice he uh, looking at the expected points statistic he was 25 plus so he had 25 points more than expected because just the numbers were so ridiculous and it's basically it's a farfer thing he, he outworks the, the expected goals model um but he's yeah espn model says i don't have the expected points in front of me but um he is 10.94 so basically 11 goals above uh, you know the expected Goals. I think the expected goals via the ESPN model is uh, 33.06. You know, we've, we know all these models vary, but, um, yeah, that's, yeah, but that's only slightly, you know, and others I have, have seen that uh, Dortmund are 11 point something, uh, you know, above, uh, what they actually should have scored. 
according to the model, but not defensively interest, interestingly, because like when he when he was at Gladbach, um, usually Gladbach had had a had, it uh, conceded far less than expected, and that's why you know they, they basically overperformed. But this time with Dortmund and even and even with Nice and the last season with Gladbach, the last good season with Gladbach, um, he he out outworked the um, expected goals model, not the, the not the conceded goals model. So it's interesting to see. Um, but yeah, Nice was ridiculous. There was just you know according to the model they should have been I don't know ninth or so, and they were third. So uh, it's just using Farfer, yeah. He does uh, such things for a living. Yeah, I'm just looking it up. Expected goals against for Dortmund. They are actually uh, almost three goals above their average. So um, they conceded, um, uh, yeah, an expected goals of, of 21 and, and uh, yeah, in reality conceded um, 17. Meanwhile, Bayern Munich um, have uh, expected uh, goals against of just 16.9 and I think they've considered 18 so um they actually um overperform on their defensive end so um this is maybe something to take a look at but uh, Dortmund still uh, the second best uh, according to expected goals against if you want so um yeah but that is I think very very interesting to to see that um you know the um Articles, the stats-based articles held true um, that Lucien Favre likes to um, overperform on the expected goals. Um, Matthias, do you just personally also like the style? I think the um, the percentage of, of uh, final third passes that turn into crosses are just 10.1, so just every 10th pass results in a cross. Um, are you a fan of that style? Um, as long as it results in goals and wins, <laughs> I'm a big fan of that style. Um, you know, it's positive football. It's not negative football, which I think isn't a surprise to anybody who's ever listened to six seasons of this podcast knows that I hate low block negative football, hate it with a passion, passion. So it's positive football. It's a little bit different than what some other people do, I'm perfectly fine with it when it, as long as it works and it's working magnificently. So I have zero complaints. It's easy on the eyes. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm good with it. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's still something I personally need to get used to bit because, um, the way Dortmund often play, especially, you know, when they just sit back and, and, uh, wait for things to happen. Um, while they are on a lead, I I always think they will never ever in life be able to hold on to it. But uh, more often than not, so far they have been able to do that. Speaking about the um the the defending part of uh, the equation, Constantine, if we talk about the title race, Dortmund have allowed 165 shots, Bayern just 128. Um, which obviously is the, the lowest in, in the league. And, um, the only thing why Bayern have, um, conceded so many shots is, is the safe percentage, um, I guess of Manuel Neuer, which is 56.1 and extremely low. Like the highest keepers in the league rank about, I think, 73, 77% or so. Um, do you think that in the long run, Bayern Munich will um, have better chances in the title race just because of uh, their defensive capabilities, even though it just didn't look very um, solid from in, in a structural way. But at least 
from a statistical standpoint, they look very sound apart from, of course, Manuel Neuer and, uh, just maybe the, the quality of shots they concede. I don't know. What, what do you make of that statistic? Um, it's very tough. I know. Yeah. It's really tough. Uh, because, because I, I mean, because like, the eye test says something entirely else. Sorry. I, I say because at least to me, the eye test says something entirely else. In what sense? In the sense that Bayern don't look very defensively sound when you just watch their games, that they are carved out quite easy, easily. Um, yeah, in some matches, yes. In, in, in others, not so much, I think. Um, in others, in others, it was, um, I mean, sometimes you see these, these, a few situations, um, during the 90 minutes where, you know, Bayern got, uh, hit on the break or something and, um, you see like uh, Hummels or Boateng or Sular struggling to, to track back or something. And, and of course it, it doesn't look good. Um, but it doesn't mean that, that Bayern are, um, you know, just defensively or so bad defensively. Um, it's, it's, it, there's more to the story. Um, sure, uh, the save percentage is, is a bit too low. Uh, but that's not like a reason to, I don't know, uh, bench Manuel Neuer or something. No, of I course mean, not. I mean, that's, or it's uh, would be a little ridiculous. Uh, I, I think so sometimes you know there will be a um, um, I think that the, the safe percentage will rise a little bit, and and um, I, I even think if uh, Hummels, Boateng, and Sule are are fit and ready to go, I think um, they are still capable of shutting down a lot of teams. Uh, but on the other hand, you had a few matches where they, the, the backline wasn't protected. And that's, that's really uh, a big issue for Bayern, um, that the midfield wasn't able to protect the backline. Um, Martinez di didn't <laughs> look that good, especially Martinez, I think. Not yeah, I was going to say, he's the first name on the sheet, but I think uh, uh, Kovac has worked that out. At least it looked like that toward the end of the season. Right, Plus. because he played Joshua Kimmich and Goretzka in midfield, and then Thiago and Goretzka and Joshua Kimmich back on the right side. Um, and, 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 and then in one match, you know, I think the last match he played Martinez and, and, uh, behind Thiago. Uh, but I think, you know, the return of Thiago is, is a, plays a big role in Bayern, um, looking far sharper, um, because Thiago, Thiago basically protects the back line because he just protects the ball. That will, um, and and turnovers are uh, far harder to achieve against Bayern when Thiago is on the pitch and basically playmaker. Um, so we will see um, what, what will happen with Bayern. I mean, they they had a shot, or I think they wanted to get uh, Lucas Hernandez uh, in, uh, during the winter break from Atletico. Um, I think both clubs decided to wait for another six months because Lucas wouldn't have been able to play the Champions League I guess uh but but Atletico could could use him to maybe get past um Juventus and Champions League and maybe win the Spanish title I mean they I think they are only trading by three points uh if I remember correctly so um but but Bayern I think will add Lucas Hernandez uh in, in next summer uh but they have to basically play with the, the three um, center backs they have right now, unless I don't know, they, they, they sign, uh, Benjamin Pavard or so, but his, his stock has dropped a lot because Stuttgart just has a awful, atrocious season and 
you know, he made a few mistakes as well. Uh, but I, I don't, I'm not a fan on just, you know, pointing the finger at the center backs because they're sometimes they are just the victims of, of anything else that's going on. Um, and, and they just look bad because they are the last piece in the puzzle and nothing else. Um, so yeah, sometimes it's not their fault. Uh, but of course, Hummels and Boateng have declined, um, you know, hitting 30 or, or approaching 30. It's it's uh it's a time when maybe you you will your performance level will drop a little bit, but uh, sometimes they they receive especially I think Boateng receives a lot of criticism unjustifiably. Um, you know sometimes he was the guy who who just hold everything together for seventy or seventy five minutes, and then maybe he made a mistake because he ran like a thousand miles, um, and, and then he was tired and he made a mistake, and that's like that it's his fault, yeah, because but he made five six uh last man tackles before that to, to just, you know, uh, keep it, the game alive. So I don't know. It's just sometimes uh, the center backs are the really the poor, you know, the, the, the um, in Germany, they say the, or, or did you say Amazon or something? Uh, you know, just, um, they are just the victims uh, of, of circumstances. Yeah. The poor pig. Uh, poor pigs. I don't know. I don't know if that's right. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, Anywho, just... Matthias, let's let's maybe uh, shift the focus a little bit back on Dortmund and uh, um, talk in in general terms about the first half of the season. Um, did you expect Dortmund to play as they do? do? Did you expect to be six points up off the table, which I guess is a no? But um, um, your your thoughts of of Dortmund's development throughout the five or six months that uh, they've been playing now under Lucien Favre? Well, I mean, I expected an improvement over last season because, God help us, had it gone the other way. Um, but I certainly didn't expect this. I, I didn't expect things to click quite so quickly to between uh, the, the coaching staff and the players and the teammates amongst each other just clicking so quickly in the, the, the extreme strides and development that you see from Sancho, um, Diallo as well, but, you know, Akanji played better and obviously Zagadou, Hakimi was a revelation. Paco Alcacer, who could have seen that? I'll be honest. Who, who could have seen that a guy breaks the uh, substitute goal scoring record before Christmas um, for the league. So it, there are certain things you simply could not foresee. I don't – one, externally, but I don't even think internally they could have foreseen quite this. Uh, definitely not the goal is from Paco Alcacer, without which Dortmund would be having a significantly worse season, and they don't have anybody, in my opinion, in the squad that can make up those goals in that position the way Paco Alcacer does. I, obviously, Maximilian Philip can't. Uh, Guts is a different type of player, so other players around him score then. Um, but it's, it's an, I'm not going to say it's an overachievement because I think they're playing to their capabilities and strengths, but the development has been much faster than I anticipated. There, I, I thought Dalmo would definitely be in the Champions League race, but um, I didn't think that, A, Bayern would be struggling to the degree they did. I figured Schalke would be, because, uh, you know, last season was a little bit of a 
just a weird Bundesliga season. This seems to be a lot more the the truth <laughs> season, not not the alternative facts season that last season uh, seemed to be. Um, so there are certain things I just couldn't foresee, and and obviously the development's been fantastic. And honestly, also Lucien Favre, it seems to be the most relaxed and jovial I can honestly ever remember him. Uh, but then I also didn't watch. And, you know, really any press conferences in his previous stints, but even on the sidelines, he just seems overall happier. Um, even in the matches I've seen him in previous places, even when they were winning, he just, I don't know, he's just a little bit of a gruntle at times. So now it was nice. It's nice to see him more jovial more often than not, which obviously winning definitely helps. Yeah, obviously. I mean, in the press conferences, it seems Lucien Ferro is just not giving a fuck. He's just bullshitting for 10 minutes or what, and then he's going home again. <laughs> That's how it is. Um, but, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously it's huge that Dortmund uh, have two players that are already in double-digit scoring-wise in the Bundesliga, Alcázar, who is... Uh, has scored 12 goals and uh, Royce uh, has 11 goals. So that's already, you know, quite an achievement. And if, if uh, that uh, holds on and they both manage to uh, contribute 20 goals each in the season, um, yeah, that is an amazing feat by itself. Um, Constantine, um, if, if you look at Favre and maybe the uh, tactical decision making, um, going from the, you know, a lot of tinkering in the first couple of games to a pattern of consistency, let's call it this way. Um, can you maybe describe a little bit the uh, tactical journey that Lucien Favre took with this Dortmund team from day one to, uh, yeah, basically Christmas? Yeah, I mean, when he started out in summer, uh, I guess what we really saw was that um, he implemented his um, his style of football very quickly. Um, uh, especially, sorry, <coughs> sorry, um, especially, um, is, uh, the, the defensive style, um, or his defensive approach to, the, or his approach in terms of, the, of defense, uh, was, you, you could see it, um, th that the players understood what he wanted them to do in terms of defending very quickly. So, um, right from the get go, Dortmund, um, more or less looked like a Farford team. But what what took him more time was um, to develop and uh, build up plays to develop um, basically a structure to then serve to uh, Royce and and Sancho and the talented attacking department. So because in the first I don't know I have to look it up, but in the first six or seven weeks, um, Royce, Sancho, and 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 uh, Alcaza or Götze or Philip. Uh, in that regard, they um, were a little bit separated, uh, isolated sometimes, um, because Witzel and Delaney, you know, they were hesitant to really move forward. Sometimes he uh, brought on Dahoud to change that. I mean, remember the, the Leverkusen match, which was a crucial match because the Dortmund looked bad during the first 45 minutes, but he brought on Dahoud. Dahoud linked up with the attacking department. The fullbacks were more aggressive and just Dortmund looked far better. Of course, that that's then when you play that way, you sacrifice some of your defensive stability. Uh, but I think what, what Farfra achieved in the, in the last uh, two months was um, that Dortmund is now a balanced team, which means that um, the, the fullbacks get more involved. Um, 
oft ein Witzel, uh, moves forward, um, mo mostly when he, after he waits a few seconds, you know, uh, just waits that the, that the play is unfolding, um, so that he can s safely move forward without, you know, getting caught on the, on the, on the wrong foot, um, which doesn't happen a lot, but it can happen even to the best, even to Axel Witzel. Um, so, but when that, when, uh, and, and then, they still defend uh, with, with comfort and with uh, confidence. So, so I think what what Fafa really achieved was to to find the balance, to find a balance between what we what he wants to see, you know, clear cut defending. Uh, he, he's he's very picky also about your know, positioning. You, he doesn't want his team to to make any any mistakes in terms of positioning. But now they they don't. They did two lines of four because Dortmund usually plays in a four two three one or in a four three three, but usually four two three one. Um, the the two lines of four, they are tight. Um, they move and switch the right way when the when the, the opponent's moving the ball. What the two players up front uh, do is, you know, that depends a little bit. Sometimes against Gladbach, you could see that the Royce was man marking Kramer and 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 uh, Paco was just, you know, handling both center backs because it was easier for him. Um, especially Bayer wasn't really comfortable on the ball, um, so he was, you know, easy or easy victim to so to say. Uh, just watch at the first goal. Um, but so. Really, what what Favre achieved was balance, and um, he's not someone. And as as many coaches in Europe, he's not someone who's dictating what his what his uh, attacking players have to do in the last third of the pitch. What he wants to do is setting up the build up plays, and then once his team enters the last uh, the last third or enters the opposing half of the pitch, and maybe an encounter attack, just let them do what they can do best. Instinct. Is, is really important. Uh, even, you know, coaches like Pep Guardiola, who, who try to, you know, to draw this stuff out a lot. Uh, but even they say we have to move the ball to our uh, attacking players. And then what they do there is really up to them decision making in, 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 you know, splits of seconds. And um, that's really Football also is about what, freedom and art, Constantine. Yeah, it's it's about freedom. It needs art. to be yeah, free I flowing. I I I I guess I guess I guess I guess uh, Farfer is like the, the the gallery director. He's you know he's <laughs> setting up all all this stuff, but the artist has to deliver. And and the artists in this case, or the artists in this case, are you know going by the names of Jaden and Marco, uh, and Mario and Paco. Um, pr pretty good boy group, I guess. I don't know. Um. <laughs> But yeah, that's, that's, uh, what he, what he really wants to do. Um, and also what I think, just one, one thing to add, uh, what I think, not in terms of tactics, but uh, what, um, Farfur adds to all of this. I mean, I, I was a big fan of Peter Bosch or of Thomas Tuchel, uh, even Peter Stöger, but they were different. Um, Lucien Farfur is like, he's like a, sometimes he, he, he acts a little bit crumpy, uh, in the press conferences or so, but he is actually, a positive type of play he smiles a lot and he brings some positive energy and i think that's that's really helping i think that's why i mean 99 of of the players he worked with just just love lucian farfra and he can even straighten out some some of these um let's say difficult kind of characters like maybe guerrero or so or maybe marco balotelli at nice <laughs> uh or maybe <laughs> that, that, that example always gets named <laughs> yeah of course or because it's marco balotelli I mean, it's <laughs> like like there's just marco balotelli and trouble are married for years um 
in a good marriage actually um no but really and and he's you know he can he can uh, teach someone like like Guerrero to really play by the rules and in even Mahmoud Dawood uh, who we all know is talented but maybe not the smartest guy in the room uh even you know he's he's someone of of the of the of father's pupils and and um father has dealt with Dahoud when he wasn't even 18 i don't i don't really want to know how how Dahoud was when he was like 17 or so he's a was probably ridiculous, but still, you know, <laughs> Favre is the kind of uh, kind of guy uh, who who works very well with every player and and brings someone like like a little bit like Klopp, like this positiveness. Um, you don't have to be like that, but uh, sometimes it really helps. You can be like Tuchel or ours uh, and be more, you know, uh, no nonsense type of guys. But I think what Favre does is combining no nonsense in some in some instances with like being a little bit positive and like smiling about having one of the best jobs in in the world. Yeah, Matthias. Um, how much do you think the, um, let's say the the off the training ground mentality has improved at Dortmund compared to the last season? I mean, of obviously winning helps a lot, uh, but um, what do you make of um, the um, spirit within the team and around the club, between team and fans, and so on and so forth? Well, I think not having the likes of Obama Young or Dembele in the side, even even though I, I hate to criticize him ever a little bit, maybe also Nuri Shahin to a certain degree, just because he was, it seemed there was a lot of negativity. Also, not having Masa Schmelzer be the captain, and instead of having it being arguably your best player in Marco Reus, uh, helps a lot. I think it took pressure off Schmelzer, who... I never really felt was super perfectly suited to be the captain, to be honest, following um, uh, Hummels. And uh, so there's less distraction. There's more positivity. And even though I would say there is a minor distraction with Pulisic, and he's obviously frustrated and obviously unhappy with his performances and lack of playing time, um, I don't know if he understands the correlation between the two necessarily. That's, I don't think anybody can, can answer that except for, uh, Pulisic himself. But even there, it's, it's less of a distraction just because his personality is, he's not flashy or flamboyant like Obama Young was or petulant like Dembele. So, uh, I think when you get rid of negative personalities, it's a huge, huge plus. And you have, you brought in some very professional players. I mean, Diallo seems pretty professional. Akanji seems pretty professional. Delaney obviously is very professional. Uh, Vitsa seems very calm, strong personality on the pitch. Uh, you don't really hear much negativity around him. Uh, maybe that also has to do with previously he was playing in Russia and China. So nobody was really aware too much of what was going on. Um, but overall, it seems that it's a significantly more positive group of players. And yes, winning helps. But uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is Remember the Titans. And there is a line in Remember the Titans that um, I think reflects everything in life. And that's attitude reflects leadership. And 
that and it's not just the leadership of the players in the locker room that also comes from from the coaching staff and and higher up i think overall the attitude is better and more constructive and more optimistic and and less fatalistic than it was even under Thomas Tuchel because Tuchel's last season things were definitely not clicking there were there were major issues and i think shipping him out too helped a bit with that atmosphere. It just took a little bit longer because you still had other people in the club. And obviously last season wasn't positive and, and the fans also contributed to that as well. Um, so there, there's a lot more leeway now with these players. Yeah. What I think really made a difference is also just the addition of, of more gritty and silly players, just like Witzel and, and Delaney. I think for the Dortmund mentality and uh, the fans perceiving themselves as a, Still very, very blue collar town. Um, I think it just helps that you have someone in midfield who can win a freaking tackle for once. Um, as, as, uh, yeah, simple as it may sound, but more often than not, it's about the little details rather than like one big thing. And, uh, you know, the change that the players now before the game also just, uh, approach the fans and applaud them. I think just the little gestures help a little bit there, um, to, yeah to basically improve the relationship that uh, was really suffering last year. I mean, uh, we all remember the banners after the Revere Derby where uh, it basically said, you know, no team represents Borussia Dortmund as little as you. And um, yeah, there have been, of course, changes made. Um, but I think one crucial point in this Hinrunde has been um, the... Uh, the move of Marco Reus to the number 10, and that did happen between match day four and five. If I remember correctly, that was in the English week. And what was interesting to me is um, match day four in the Bundesliga was Hoffenheim. And um, before Dortmund played against Fürth, a lucky win against uh, Leipzig, and uh, Frankfurt was also not the easiest win, uh, a scoreless draw against Hanover and of course the uh, very lucky one win against Bruges where Christian Pulisic had this uh, yeah sort of deflection goal on his birthday and then of course the one one draw against Hoffenheim where I think Marius Wolf played in the strike position and Shinji Kagawa was on the number ten and um, Marco Reus after the Hoffenheim game said to me that he is sort of sacrificing himself for the team right now that he basically is not playing the best position or the, the best football that he can play because he's basically yeah doing a lot of service to his other teammates and that sort of struck me and I wanted to think a little bit longer about that but uh, Lucien Favre did not allow that to happen because then he moved him to the number 10 position against uh, Nürnberg of course and that was the uh, emphatic 7 nothing win and to me that sort of I don't know if it's a bit of a chicken egg discussion here but um, that was the first time we saw Dortmund's free-flowing attacking football uh, this season which we already got to see a little bit in the preseason but not really during during um, yeah the regular season so um, to me that sort of changed the complexion complexion of Dortmund's game and was obviously um, yeah to me an easy one because you put the best player in his best position and uh yeah 
to little surprise all of the sudden things start to work out better that being said um the the first half against Leverkusen in the game afterwards was uh, terrible but maybe that was also because um Dortmund just had a 7 nothing win on the Wednesday I think and then 3 days later against Leverkusen it wasn't all that comfortable but uh, also striking maybe if we stay on the subject of Marco Reus I think after the Leverkusen game he criticized his teammates or or the, the or everyone I think he even included himself that just the, the warm-up said looked too lackluster and, uh, you know, that he, he thought that nothing good could come of it. And it sort of did because Dortmund were trailing, I think, by two goals at halftime. Um, Matthias, maybe back to you real quick. Do you think that Marco Roy's transformation and the leadership that he now exudes and the way he, even after a 4-0 win against Stuttgart or whatever, always sort of, um, you know, pushes the finger into the wound, uh, helps his team basically keep their focus throughout the most part of the season. Well, for sure. Um, I think there's also an aspect that I believe does play a role uh, for someone like Marco Reus, at least for him is uh, coming off of his first World Cup where he was able to be there uh, and without injury and how extraordinarily disappointing it was. You know, lack of leadership, poor performances, arrogance, all that kind of stuff. And and I I can't imagine that it didn't have an impact on him. And, and especially coming off of a negative season with Dortmund going, you know what? Screw this. We can't allow this to happen at BVB. And the fact that he has been, knock on wood, uh, healthy uh, for for the entire Hinderrunde. And I think that helps his self-confidence and a more positive, optimistic outlook. And I think that helps it as well um, without being arrogant. He's not arrogant in, in his in his self-confidence and the way he stands tall. I mean, he's, he's a Dortmunder and, and you can definitely see that it's his club. He's, he's made it very, very uh, obvious over the last few seasons that he is choosing Dortmund. He could go, he could have gone multiple, multiple times and made significantly more money, but he wants to be at Borussia Dortmund. And, uh, I think that, that shines through in how he conducts himself and how he manages his teammates, especially many of the very young teammates or the people that are new to the club and new to the Bundesliga, uh, to get them to quote unquote fall in line and, and kind of understand the way things are supposed to go and take, take leadership without being too negative all the time. I felt like over the last two seasons, whenever you heard Nuri Shahin or Marcel Schmelza, it was just it kind of same old, same old, and and uh, Marco Reus seems to be a little bit different in that regard. I can't exactly put my finger on it. It's more in an intangible than a tangible thing that you can truly see, but uh, it's obviously uh, affecting his gameplay in a positive way and having more of a free role. You can really see everything that Marco Reus has to offer. Yeah, definitely. Constantine, there are obviously a lot of uh, positives coming out of uh, this first half of the season. Um, but looking to the next half of the season, uh, what can Dortmund actually do better, in your opinion? Because there's always room left for improvement. Sure, I mean, uh, sometimes um, a bit more composure against these uh, counter-attacking 
oriented sites um like Düsseldorf or even <laughs> e- e- even like Freiburg or so because because there were a few matches Dortmund won but um you know with, with a few dicey situations um throughout the 90 minutes so especially against teams from the second division you say yes yes, <laughs> yes. especially against them um no, but yeah, I mean that's that's something um, because like dropping three points to Düsseldorf wasn't was unnecessary. Uh, let let's be honest here, um, or it's really unnecessary actually. Uh, but that that's something you know you have to look out for um, to to stay a bit more composed sometimes um, and not commit too much too too fast, um, and then you know having like these these. Were like bad turnovers, like the one against uh, Düsseldorf, because uh, before Luka Bakio scored, um, just something that shouldn't happen. Um, and it happened, you know, a few times. And it happened against Leverkusen, and it almost happened against Freiburg, and happened against Hertha, and yeah, something like that should it shouldn't. Um, so that's one thing. Other than that, I don't know. I mean, it depends a little bit on on what uh, is going on on the personnel side. Are you, are they going to sign someone? I don't know. Um, or you know, maybe another center forward because Alexander Isak is also uh, locked in the same locker as uh, Kagawa and uh, Jeremy Tolian. I, sh- I should not take that joke any further. I made previously. It, it's actually a very it's a big one. You know, it's like there are a few others. But I heard that Roda has escaped. Yes, he has. Maybe that's a good segue, Matthias. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we get the hell out of here, um, real quick, Sebastian Rode joining Eintracht Frankfurt on loan for the rest of the season. His contract obviously goes on until 2020. So, um, but he's off the wage bill, I guess. Um, a quick comment. Um, I'm happy for him. I'm happy for Dortmund. I'm happy for Frankfurt. I think it's a win-win-win situation. I was a big fan of Sebastian Rode when he played for Frankfurt. Um, I think he did really, really well there, and he probably uh, probably admits he should have just stayed there instead of going to Bayern and the Dortmund and really his career going nowhere. Uh, so I think it's good for him. Uh, maybe he can he can finally sit on the bench. And, uh, everybody can take this out as a positive. I know I've seen a lot of just nasty comments on Twitter because Twitter is a cesspool of garbage. Uh, when it comes to Sebastian Rode, you know, let's give the guy a bit of a break. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm definitely wishing him all the best of luck as I do Eintracht Frankfurt as well. I mean, he has been sort of Dortmund's mascot and, uh, the uh, best performance of uh, last season was when he announced that Peter Stöger will uh, be a lame duck <laughs> that was kind of funny but um yeah so much for Sebastian Rudu who I think just played 44 minutes in the Super Cup last season and then got injured and was uh, not seen again and this season obviously just in the Regionalliga where he played a couple of minutes so um yeah overall I looked it up earlier in uh, the four and a half seasons he uh, played since uh, leaving Frankfurt, he has played about 2,800 minutes and uh, I think in his four seasons at Frankfurt of professional football in two seasons, he played more minutes than that in one year. So um, that really goes to show um, yeah, how often he was plagued by injuries or just being disregarded by, by coaches. So um, yeah, he really needs to reinvigorate his career. Um, so 
I guess, final question, Matthias and Konstantin, what's uh, better being six points ahead of Bayern uh, by Christmas or 24 points ahead of Schalke? Matthias, you can go first. Oh, God, it's so hard to choose. Uh, no, obviously being six points ahead of a good team is better than, uh, you know, 24 points ahead of a very bad and sub-mediocre team. So uh, I definitely got to go with the being ahead of Bayern is more important and more satisfying than being ahead of Schalke. Konstantin, where does yeah. the Schadenfreude take you? <laughs> I I guess because I'm I'm not as into the the Dortmund Schalke rivalry as as many other people are. Um, I'm sorry. I mean I I get it. I yeah. I also make fun of Schalke, um, but um, I think for Dortmund as a club is far more important where they are in the table. Um, you know you can can be ahead of Schalke but still get relegated. So you know whatever. Fair um, point. Uh, yeah, or you can, you know, you can, you can be, especially when Schalke is so bad. I mean, I can, you can be 10th and still ahead of Schalke, but I think you're still in a crisis. Um, so I, I guess it's, it's far better to, to, you know, lead the Bundesliga and maybe get a, get a shot at winning the title. It's, it's just, uh, that's what's really about. And, and Dortmund as a club. And yeah, I, I hate it to say, but as a brand, uh, internationally, and and just uh, you know the establishing or re-establishing itself uh, as as the number two in Germany because Bayern will still be number one for many years to come. Uh, but establishing themselves as the number two, it's important to, to attract other players to get the next Jaden Sancho um, and to maybe get the next Paco Alcázar or others. Um, and and that's it, just important uh, for for our club. I mean, yeah, it's 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 great to make fun of Schalke, but it's not like you will win anything or get anything from from being ahead of Schalke, especially since Schalke is not like in the best shape right now. And um, it's you know you can I don't know if it's really you know, kicking someone when 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 he or she is down. Why not? But maybe. Only a little bit. All right, all right, all right. Um, maybe we should keep the rest of the fun uh, for next week when we do our uh, season watch show. And as always, we ask our listeners to uh, give us the categories uh, and um, basically suggest them on Twitter and Facebook, and we will then hand out awards by a very uh, encrypted, uh, 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 a very complicated system. Um, and we will definitely need Lars to uh, keep track and write down all the awards and then at the end uh, have a very obvious candidate, which, uh, yeah. Anyway, so without any further ado, please, uh, guys out there, uh, go to Twitter and Facebook and uh, make your suggestions. And um, I think with that, uh, we can leave it here. Once again, thanks for coming on, Konstantin Eckner. Uh, please uh, tell our listeners how to get in touch with you on the internet and uh, where they can find and read your work. Yeah, I should, should just go on on uh, Twitter, cc underscore ecknr, and then you know follow follow my path um, on Twitter, <laughs> and I will I will link anything you you need uh, to read and maybe stuff you don't need to read but you should, and that's it. All right. Uh, thanks also to Matthias for uh, being here and uh, spending time with us talking about Borussia Dortmund. Uh, Matthias, how can people reach you? And that's uh, what you described as cesspool. <laughs> 
yeah, on Twitter at Matiasuk, and uh, I want to wish everybody a very safe and happy New Year. Until we speak yes. again, ein guten Rutsch also from me into 2019. You can find me at Stefan Butzko on Twitter, and if you want to get hold of all of us, uh, like the Twitter and Facebook that I just mentioned, please do that at Yellow Wallpot uh, on both sides, and you can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And as previously mentioned, if you want to contrib contribute financially, like Taylor Martin and Abdullah Al-Raisi, please go to patreon.com slash the wall. That's all for us from 2018. Until next year, goodbye.